You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with the Stig Broderson. He's a value investor, business owner, and international bestselling author. His podcast, We Study Billionaires, has 30 million plus downloads and has been recognized as the number one stock investing podcast in the world. He's received the award of number one stock investing podcast on iTunes, number one stock investing podcast on Google, number one investing podcast on CNBC, and number one investing podcast by a business insider, and much, much more. On today's episode, we talk about how does a podcast host build a relationship with advertisers for their show? How do analytics play a part in podcasting? What are the struggles with having the core team in another country like the Philippines? And how can one make a career out of podcasting? Also, at the end of this show, we have a special announcement for all our listeners. It involves my next steps, what I'm doing in the future, and the exciting things to come. So stay tuned for those announcements and enjoy the show. All right, let's start. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Stig, thank you for taking the time today to be on this amazing podcast. Thank you, Sean, for having me on your show. Now, Stig, 99% of our listeners probably know who you are, probably are big fans. But for that 1% that haven't heard you, haven't met you before, can you give us a little bit of background on who you are and some of the things you've done up to this point? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Together with my friend, Preston Pish, started the Investors Podcast Network, and which is also how we got to know each other. I know we'll be talking a lot more about that later here in this interview, but that's sort of like one thing I would like to highlight. This is an amazing space to be in, the podcasting space. You get to meet so many great people. I'm so happy I got to meet you, meet the rest of the team, meet the community. And that's sort of like how it all got started. Prior to that, whenever I say in the past, we started our network in 2014. And at that time, it wasn't really a network. It was just Preston me like goofing around with a podcast. But before then, I was a college professor. And even before that, I was working as a commodities trader. So that was sort of like my way of going into the whole podcasting space. And I think that a lot of people in podcasting would say they had their own completely random story because no one has a degree in podcasting. There's no like traditional path going into what we're doing right now, which I think just makes it a lot more interesting. So then why podcast? Why did you want to start it? What opportunities did you see? Sean, I would like to say that I saw amazing opportunities at the time, but I really didn't. More than anything, it was really a coincidence. I have a good friend, Preston, who I started this with, and he gave me a call. I think this might have been back in, yeah, probably back in 2014, probably in the spring of that or something like that, and just met up in person. We've become friends, and we actually never met each other up to that point. And so we met each other in the U.S. I live in Denmark, if, so if people are like, you met in the U.S.? <laughs> what are you guys doing? But anyways, at the time, I actually lived in Sweden, but regardless, I flew to US, we got to know each other and started talking about you know, doing something together. And a few weeks later, he gave me a call and said, hey, let's do a podcast. So honestly, we didn't really have any strategy. We didn't see any great opportunities. We didn't see podcasting take off. Or at least I didn't see that at all. It was just more that this could be a lot of fun to do. And then, hey, let's see where it takes us. And then the team at the Investors Podcast Network, it's global. I mean, you're in Europe. 
most of the staffs in the Philippines, Preston's in the U.S. How did you build your current team? So many things about how we started the network. That's just really a coincidence. I met Preston because we're both interested in Warren Buffett. And based on that, he just coincidentally lived in the U.S. We wrote a few books together and became friends and started the podcast. That was a coincidence. The way I, I met you and met the other host was that you already listened to the podcast, which was very intentional that we wanted people to already listen to the main show, The Investor's Podcast, or We Study Billionaires, as we often call it. So that was sort of like the idea behind that part. And people just tend to live in the US if they listen to our show. But really, specifically about the Philippines, again, that's another random story. So at that point in time, I was actually living in Korea. And I didn't speak a word of Korean. I had no clue how to survive. And I needed someone to help me translate and kind of like help me just have a life there. And I met this amazing person, Bianca Alcera, from my team. And she offered to help me out. I actually thought there would probably be a Korean. The only thing I asked for was that the person spoke Korean and English. She was coincidentally Filipino, but spoke English and Korean. And so that was sort of like how that started. And we started hiring their family and their family's friends. And that was sort of like how it all got started. I don't think if you're looking for like a blueprint, like this is how you do it, I would not recommend anyone to do what I'm doing. Go to Korea, ask for someone who speaks the language probably hire their family. It's just such a weird story whenever I hear myself telling the story of how it all happened. But that is how it basically all happened. So then what are the struggles with having the core team in another country like the Philippines? I definitely thought a lot about that before we started that team in the Philippines, because to me, that was a completely different culture. I'd never been to the Philippines at that point in time. I barely visited Asia. So it was very, very new to me. All of that being said, I also have to say that I'm Danish. And for those of you listening to this and like, is that a cake or something? What do you mean? I'm from Denmark, so I'm Danish. So I just would like to clarify that. But for me, it was actually quite difficult working with Americans to begin with, because the culture in the US is just so different. And then people in the US listening to this would be like, oh, you can't just say US. The culture in New York is just so much different than it is in Silicon Valley. And yes, that's very, very true. I've worked with people so many different places in the US, and it's so different how people work. So just that for me was actually difficult. And at the time, I was working with someone from Germany, someone from the UK, actually we still are. And then you add in the Philippines. I've never worked with anyone from Denmark on this project. It has definitely been very difficult. A lot of things can be lost in translation. English not being my first language. In the Philippines, luckily their English is much better than mine, but a lot of people are raised with Filipino, the local language, but also with English, but they still consider Filipino their first language. Even just with that, there's just so many things that are really, really tricky, even before you start adding in the cultural differences. But for us, it was very much a strategic focus. Up to that point, we actually worked with different freelancers in Bangladesh, in India, different places in the Philippines. And it was just very, very difficult to do that. At least it was for me. To make it a bit more simple, to make it easier for myself, it just made a lot more sense to set up a team, not just in the Philippines, but specifically in Metro Manila and sort of go from there. So the team in the Philippines, I mean, what are the difficulties there with working with time zones? I mean, there's a lot of people that have tried outsourcing. There's a lot of great websites that people always refer to, but 
a lot of them, as you'd mentioned, seem to have struggles. What was it that was so successful about how you were doing it? How have you been able to really create this synergy? There's a lot of moving parts really into this because one thing that was a huge advantage for TAP going to the Philippines was that we had one specific person from the team who could set a lot of practical things up for us. She could recommend her family. She could recommend her friends. That was just such a huge advantage for us going into this compared to just you going there and you put up your Excel sheet and you said, there's a lower cost in the Philippines for a programmer than in Silicon Valley. I mean, that's a really, really tough approach. There's just so many things that was explained to me. I've been working with Filipinos since 2016, and I still feel ignorant. I still feel that there are so many things that I don't understand, and often I feel I misunderstood in how I act. So I think to truly start outsourcing, you have to make it a strategic focus that you really want to make an effort into understanding the country, visiting the country, understanding the culture and why it's different and appreciate that it's different. Because if you don't do that, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for you to find the right people. What most people do is that they will go to something like Upwork or they might read a book like Virtual Freedom, which is an amazing book by Chris Docker about how to work with specifically Filipinos, but overseas workers. And I've done that and I think it's great. But you also need to understand that if that is your approach, and I'm specifically talking about Upwork here now, if that's how you want to do it, you don't always find the best people in there. Because the best people in the Philippines, at least according to my own knowledge, they're not typically freelancers. There are definitely some who are freelancers that just enjoy the lifestyle, and that's great. A lot of the really good people, they already have really, really good jobs. Because stability is also so important. And of course, a nice salary is also important. And say that you're a good programmer. Like a good program in the Philippines would make significantly more than a lot of blue-collar workers in the US, which probably sound like crazy for a lot of people listening to this. But it does make a lot of sense because it is just such a global world. And whenever I'm looking for a new programmer, I wouldn't say I'm competing with Google or Amazon or Facebook, but a lot of the major IT companies, even in the Valley, they're setting up their own shops in Manila and they've been there for many, many years. So it is tricky to do that. And if you want good people and not just saving on cost, but if you want good people, you probably have to do something that's a lot more committed than see if you can outsource 10 hours here and 20 hours there. You can definitely do that, but you should also just know that the way that you're virtual assistant or whoever you're hiring are looking at you is that it's likely something that's temporary. So you won't get the best effort from the best people. So podcasting has grown in popularity. What have been the changes that you've seen in the past? What are you expecting for the coming years? I think one thing that's been very, very different from when we started making the first podcast back in 2014 is that the quality of production is just so much higher today. You would have to spend more time on like doing editing, having a great script. The industry in many ways is really maturing and I think you'll see in consolidation in many ways and you'll see it become more and more professional. I'm not going to say that it's going to look like the music business, but it's definitely more going to look like the music business than it has in the past. So just know that as you're going into this, you're competing with different players today than you were in the past. 
you see all the major brands, especially in the US, the scene really started like, it was really the indie scene more than anything else. That has changed. In the future, I expect this to continue even more. And I don't want to discourage anyone by saying this, but as it becomes more and more professional, I do think it becomes more and more difficult for a lot of startups with your one guy behind the microphone with a passion for something. I think there's always room for something like that. And I think it will continue to be popular in some niches, but it is very different, the industry that we're looking into. What do you think will be the major factors for if a show is popular or not then in the future? Let's talk about what a popular podcast is. And it's a tricky question because if we define popular as top 1% or top 10% or like what is really a popular podcast, if we feel that popular is defined by getting a few hundred downloads a month, and it definitely can be for a lot of people. Think about how often you speak to a few hundred people. It's just like never happens. I don't think you need to watch out for in like any major factors. But if we're looking like at the very top, the podcasting industry is very top heavy and will probably be even more. And what I mean by that is if you look at something like the music business, think about how few artists sells the vast, vast majority. I don't know like how many downloads the top 1% of artists would have, but I would imagine it would probably be what, 90 plus percent or whatever. If you really want to make it as a podcaster, in the future, I think distribution is really crucial. You can have the best podcast in the world, but if no one knows that you have the best podcast in the world, it's just going to be very difficult. And as much as we like to see and say that if you have great content, people will talk about it and then it will just grow, I think it's harder today than it has been. A lot of people are still like searching, but if you look at the major platforms, they're already making recommendations for you guess what? There might be recommendations to some of the more popular shows because the algorithm would say that's what people like to listen to. They might not be picking your show. The big platforms, you know, Spotify would be one of them. CastBox could be another Apple podcast. That's the biggest. A lot of the bigger platforms, they have their own studios now, especially Spotify, who just buying and buying and buying amazing podcasts. And we see, or at least this is pre-corona crisis, we saw a lot of podcasters from the bigger platforms advertising on other shows. Like we get approached all the time from other podcasts who wants to pay us to talk about other podcasts. And we would do that if the podcasts are great. But we see a lot of that. I don't necessarily expect that to happen too much here during the corona crisis and after because a lot of venture capital money just doesn't exist anymore. It's really just dried up. But you had so much money flowing in. They're just promoting the big networks. And so... I think that's something you need to compete against. Even if your podcast is just as good or even better, hey, if they have a marketing budget of hundreds of thousands of dollars, perhaps even million dollars, promoting their shows on other platforms and their own platform algorithm would pick their shows. It's just a very different world in 2020 than it was just two or three years ago. And we can probably only expect that to accelerate here over the next few years. So to sum up your question, It's easier than ever to start a new podcast of good quality and reach hundreds of listeners. However, if you want to make a living out of podcasting and have a top 1% podcast with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of listeners per episode, due to how the industry has changed, it's unfortunately become a bit more difficult, but luckily not impossible at all to do. And I really hope this comes off as I encourage everyone to get started with the podcast. And if you want to make a living out of it, 
you may then make the decision whether or not you would put in that extra work down the line. So if someone's crazy enough to still want to do a podcast after that amazing heartwarming motivational speech, what equipment's needed? What software's needed? Please give us the information on everything. A few of the questions that I always get, that's about equipment. And whenever it comes to your equipment, I think it really depends on your level of ambition. For most people, I guess 99% of the people who want to start podcasting, and you can include me in, in that equation, it was just supposed to be fun. Like you have a message to the world, you have something you're passionate about, and that's great. And what you can do is you can get started for like 50 bucks. You can buy a microphone. You, I think you can, I mean, you can even use your headset for, for a smartphone and you can get started. Obviously, the audio quality won't be as good, but it doesn't really cost you anything to get started. I think you can go on Anchor and I think they even provide free hosting or something close to that if you're a new podcaster. So it doesn't have to be fancy. I know my response before, which was probably very discouraging, like that's really like, hey, I hate my day job. I want to make a living doing podcasts. It's like, okay, I completely respect that. If you want to do that, you need to do something different. And that's okay. You can do that. Or you can say, hey, I just want to have fun. And that's just another setup. But if you want to be professional into doing this, and you probably need to buy a really good equipment. And really good equipment for podcasting is not as expensive as it is for many other things you want to be good at. A few thousand dollars and you have your own studio. And so that's obviously still a lot of money to get started. But if you want to sound like you're sitting next to each other, even in situations when you're not, we can just say, Sean is in Silicon Valley right now and I'm in Denmark. Just think that there's an underappreciation for really, really good audio. And we get bombarded with so many things all the time. So unless we have a deep connection to the host, we probably will look for an excuse not to listen to that podcast. So I think the equipment part is very important. And I think one piece of advice I could give if someone is interested in getting started, and they might think that, well, I just want to check it out first. Do that. Use your phone or get a USB microphone for like, I don't know, 30 bucks. Get started and test it out. Set up your own feed, which is completely free. Make a lot of mistakes. And if you feel that this is something you want to do, if you really feel you want to be serious about this, you can perhaps spend a bit more on equipment and set up a new feed, do it all over and take it from there. So you mentioned a lot there. Can you go into more detail on maybe if there's any equipment to edit the podcast or any software, any recommendations for platforms or a process from start to finish? Here on the network, we use something called Adobe Audition. I think the cost of that is something like $20 a month or something similar to that. There's a lot of great free software out there. If you want a little more, and I might not be the right person to ask here because we do this for a living. But if you pay for software, something like Adobe Audition, for instance, there are other great paid software out there. You just get a bit more, but you can probably get 90% of that just from the free software you're already using that might come with the computer that you already have. And so much of the editing can be improved, but 80% of the value is just cutting out a lot of rambling, like what I do now, whenever you're doing something like podcasting. Another thing I would like to point out is that Going into podcasting, really regardless of the level of ambition you have, I think it's very important as you plan the first few episodes that you consider the transition you want the listener to go through and really have that as your basis. And whenever I say transition, you know, I can use 
the example of the stock investing podcast we have, we typically always have two to three key takeaways that we want the listener to really take away. So what is it? So a specific episode, it might be different type of strategy. Okay, so you have something that we always relate back to. We have things that we might continue summarizing. And we might want to have that specific guest who we can point to have the credentials in just that transition or that key takeaway that we want to give. And I think that might sound like it's constraining some people. I think it would actually set you free in many ways because you can easily have like a writer's block kind of thing whenever you start podcasting, like you're just staring at that blank piece of paper, what you're all about. And if you start with, hey, this is the two or three things I want the listeners to learn or to take away from my podcast for that specific episode, I think it would be very, very helpful for new podcasters. And then how do analytics play a part in podcasting? I mean, what are you looking for when you're looking at the data, the screens of the listeners? I don't feel that I do a good job of doing analytics. As with so many other companies, we have so much data, but we don't always tend to use that data, which I'm sure it's something a lot of people can probably recognize whenever they're thinking about their own business or their own job. There is a lot of good things to be said about following data. There are different ways of naming an episode that's just more attractive to people. An Apple podcast, where, which is still the biggest platform, you can get a lot of data and whenever people drop off. Why did you can always then question why is that people drop off there? But very important that you are true to yourself and stay motivated. So just give you a very recent example. So with anything that's happening with the COVID-19, every time we talk about it on the show and every time we put that on the title of that specific episode, we just know that we get more listeners. But I also think it can be a bit dangerous to be too focused on the data. Like if I had to talk about COVID-19 and the impact of the market every single week, those episodes would be really, really bad because I don't have anything new to say every single week about that. So it's very important that you focus on being true to yourself. And people need to know what they're getting whenever they're listening to your show. So if you are really passionate about talking about this type of technology, even though that you see that another type of technology is just more popular, but if you don't care about that, it might be a short-term gain, but it's definitely going to be a long-term pain. Having data steer you in ways you don't want to be steered. And then with that, say someone wanted to make podcasts in either a professional career or a side hustle or something, what are the ways that they can make money? The most popular way is to use advertising. And whenever you're listening to podcasts for 10, 15, 20 minutes, whenever it is, and you really go to this exciting spot in the podcast, and then someone says, hey, let's take a quick break. I want to sell you a mattress. That's how many podcasters are making money, including ourselves. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I, I, I remember I had a lot of difficulties going into that, that, oh, to really use advertising, is that a good way to start monetizing? We tried many different things. We tried paid podcasting without ads. We tried the current format. We actually tried different formats too. But it turns out that people, at least yet, are not too happy about paying for content without ads. Very, very often people like the content and they're okay with that. So advertising is how most podcasters are making money. And if you're interested, we can you know, later talk about some of the rates and how many downloads you need to have to make a living out of it. But that's one way to go. You would typically need to reach a given amount of downloads before you are interested to most advertisers, at least if you're doing deals 
like between you and and the advertiser. There are certain platforms where the provider will you know set that up all for you. They would take a generous cut of that, of course. But then even if you only have 100 downloads or 200 downloads, you would still get, you would probably wouldn't do personalized ads, but you would still like get a, something similar to a radio spot and you can make money off that. Other podcasters, they're promoting their own products. You know, in many ways you can say that podcasting is marketing. Hopefully it's more than marketing. Hopefully it also provides a lot of value. But if you are an expert on a specific field, you know, say different types of technology, say that you just have this specialty into say AI, you might have a course talking about AI. You might have written a book about AI. And you can sort of like use your podcast as a way to start funneling sales for yourself. And a third avenue could be something like affiliate marketing. You might not have your own products, but you might have other products that you are very passionate about. The good thing is the product already, it's already been created. You don't even need to create your own product. But then you're, of course, uh, depending on having a good relationship with that company. Podcast host, new to the arena, how would they create that relationship with the advertisers for the show? Unless you reach a given size, it's quite difficult. The way it works, at least right now, is that most advertisers say that they have a million dollars. Of that million dollars, it's typically only a few percent that would go to podcast advertising. And they won't necessarily go to one specific show. They might do that if you're Tim Ferriss or if you have a huge podcast, they might go directly to you. But very often, it would go through agencies. So they would go to an agency. The biggest one out there would be Ad Results Media. And they would, of course, take a cut. That's why we have them. That's all well and good and why we like them. And they make it easy for you as a podcaster to get access to that podcast advertising. So Say that they would get a budget of, I don't know, $200,000, and then they could spread that over multiple shows. So that's typically how it works. A lot of the relationships go through agencies. So you can more or less look at it like, you know, if you were a huge show, whenever I say huge show, it's from 100,000 downloads and up. Not all of it, but some of that would definitely be directly from the advertiser to the podcast host. Then you might have like medium-sized podcast that might be from 10,000 to 100,000. These are just rough numbers. A lot of that would go through agencies and then you have less than 10,000. You can still land some deals, but very often the way to monetize this may be through a platform where you are sort of like a pool of perhaps 100 different podcasts. And that platform could be something like Megaphone or something like that then lands like a, a huge deal, and then it's spread out over hundreds of podcasts. Well, let's cover some of the numbers then. So if one wanted to turn podcasts into a career, what are the numbers of listeners someone would need to be able to do that? Just to present a few terms from the industry. So typically, it would be referred to a gross CPM or net CPM. And a CPM is really a thousand downloads. And it's a thousand downloads after 30 days after it's been released. And the rate for that would be something like $20, sometimes up to $40 gross CPM. So whenever I say gross CPM, it's before the agencies come in. And an agency is typically charged between 15 to 30%, sort of like depending on the volume you bring and what type of show it is, what their own policy is. But a lot of that would be a lot closer to 20 than 40. Whenever you had the good old days, whenever I say the good old days, it's like a few months ago, 
you especially had a lot of advertising dollars from Silicon Valley. And I'm not just saying Silicon Valley because I'm now speaking with you, Sean, on your show, Silicon Valley. You had a lot of money coming from Silicon Valley for different reasons. And they were willing to pay $40, $50, sometimes even more for a thousand downloads. And so let's see what's going to happen now. A crisis typically not good for advertising. But I think what is important to understand whenever you hear about me talking about rates and whenever you might like look up different numbers online, a lot of those numbers were created at a time where there was a bull market, like the economy was strong. And at the time, you saw a lot of money flowing in to brand awareness, especially you saw that from Silicon Valley. So new products where there's no direct response. And whenever I say direct response, it's something like a mattress, for instance. They put X thousand dollars into your campaign and they expect to see so many mattresses being sold. So that's, that's good. Direct response, that's good for the, for the advertiser because they can track all that. But it's not necessarily as good for the podcaster. Now, what was happening was that we saw a lot of money come into brand awareness. Like We saw a lot of tech companies that needed to show investors for their B round or C round or whatnot that they had more sales. They didn't really have to focus too much on the cost. It wasn't like, hey, we're putting a thousand in, we need a thousand dollars out. It might be like if you put a thousand dollars in and we can show improved sales of three hundred dollars, never mind the cost, it might actually make sense for them to do that because they were just having a different mindset. They were not talking about profitability. That wasn't the focus. So keeping that in mind, we already seen that that has dried up that type of brand awareness a lot. So it's definitely not like it's completely gone, but we've seen a lot of that disappear over the last few months. Some of the rates call it $20 closer to that net. So after the cut from the agency, perhaps down to 15, depending on what's happening. And then you can sort of like say, oh, how much money would I need to make a living out of this or to, to have a side hustle? What would be beneficial for me? And then you can sort of like, do the numbers based on that. And the last thing I just want to say to that is, we're just talking about one ad spot here. We're not just talking about the number of downloads. So you can have one, two, three, ten 10 ad spots. It's up to you how many ad spots you want to have. Advertisers particularly like for you not to have more than, say, two to four ad spots, because the more ad spots you have, the more you dilute the other advertiser that's also on your show. So it's just to give you some sort of ballpark number if you are serious about doing podcasts for a living, which can be a little stressful from time to time, but it's still the most amazing thing to do. I hope I do sell that well. I haven't regretted that for a second. It's a lot of fun doing podcasting for a living. In your journey, who have been some of the podcast hosts that you've gotten some tips from, takeaways that you implement? Which of the podcast hosts do you admire? I think you're a great host, John. And I'm saying that because talking is so natural to you. Talking, interviewing, it just seems very natural to you. It's not for me. For many of the podcasts that I have, it can easily take me 8, 10, 12 hours preparing for that. And I'm not just talking about like reading a book and then preparing. I'm actually talking about what is it that I want to say. If people feel I've been rambling a lot and they're like, listen to this and like, Steak, how can you ever make a living out of podcasting? I'm usually on the other side of the microphone, typically not the one being interviewed. So I'm being put on the spot a few times here, which is perfectly fine. But it doesn't come natural to me to speak about complicated topics in a language that's, by the way, not even my native language. 
it's very, very difficult for me to do. So whenever I speak with someone like you, Sean, I'm like, geez, you skipped the first three years of podcasting. You just hit the ground running because it comes natural to you. So I think you do an amazing job. Another host I really admire would be someone like Guy Ross from How I Built This. He's so good at making it all about the guests. He's so well-paired. He's such a good storyteller. And he doesn't take focus away from the story. I think even if you're not interested in startups, I would listen to his podcast, How I Build This, just to understand how talented he is and how good he is of making people comfortable and driving the story in a good way for everyone. I really like Guy Ross. I really think he's able to capture and connect with his guest and bring out emotion in the story and do it at a level that everyone can understand. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of him as well. But I also want to ask you, in your podcast journey, you said you started in 2014. I mean, you've been at it six years now, ups and downs. What are some things, if you were to start over, what would you do differently? I think there are a ton of things I would do differently. Like, I made so many mistakes that it's, it's just unbelievable. But a few things I would like to highlight. I think that I would have liked to build a team much faster if I could. And whenever I say this, I know it sounds like, you know, I came in and I invested a ton of money. I, I definitely didn't invest a ton of money. I bought decent equipment, but I never put in like money to hire staff. Like all of this would be always been internally generated. But I would still say that I would like to have hired programming hours, designer hours much sooner. And I know before I talked about why it, it might not be a good idea for you to hire someone freelance. I think it's actually a very good idea to do that in the very beginning because your time is just so valuable. And even a freelance designer can probably do better design than you can unless, unless you're really good with design already. And so I think as soon as I had 100 bucks or 50 bucks, I would have put that into some design hours. And I think I was too frugal to begin with. I feel that I would much rather spend 100 hours on something instead of spending $100 and which is just ridiculous, right? Whenever you think about your hourly wage, I think there's a lot of good to be said about sweat equity, but I think I definitely overdid it to begin with. And I should have started with that much sooner. For most people who might be starting a podcast, if they don't have mangeal experience, and, and even if you do have, it's just different whenever you have a podcast, you're not in the same setting. For me, I already had started my own company years before I started the podcast, already had hired and fired people. And I felt I was well-prepared in many ways. I was definitely not prepared at all for doing that. So I feel the sooner you can get started by you know, hiring a freelancer somewhere, whatever that would be, a few hours here and there, I think that's very important. And I think that, especially if you're doing it as a side hustle, which most people are, including myself, whenever I got started, you really need to respect your own time and not just spend in vain. The other thing is I probably shouldn't tell anyone listening to your podcast, John, because they know all about Minimal Viable Product. It was a brand new concept to me whenever I got started, believe it or not. I never heard about it before. I had to read about it in the Lean Startup. Yeah, years in, it never occurred to me you can do something like that. So I used to be the person who would make sure that everything would be quote-unquote perfect before we send it out, then realizing people couldn't care less and then wasted three, six, 12 months. For you out there, it probably seems like a no-brainer, especially for someone like you being in Silicon Valley, but it's something I would like to have done much sooner is to start up more projects, fail a lot faster, 
and then scale what worked. And I know a lot of people have been saying that, and it sounds so simple, but actually doing it, putting your own name up there, your own face up there, and then fail and be okay with that, I should have done that much sooner. And I think it's just a question about if you fail once, it sucks. If you fail twice, it sucks twice as much. Whenever you fail 100 times, it's just statistics, right? So, Sean, keeping all of this in mind that we talked about here, and I sort of like have an idea of what's in the horizon for you, but for the listeners who do not know what's in store for you, what are your plans with Silicon Valley? What are your plans for future projects? Actually, one of the greatest things about this episode is this is kind of not, I don't want to say the farewell episode to the Investors Podcast platform because we're always going to have a strong connection. But Stig and I have been talking about the future with his guidance, his blessing, and all the knowledge I've taken over the last almost year, to be honest, since I first sat down with Stig, is I'm going to branch off and do my own podcast. It's going to be called The Silicon Valley Podcast. And if you want to check it out at the website, the Silicon Valley Podcast.com. And the focus, it's going to be very similar to what's already happening right now on TIP. There are going to be some changes to it. I'm excited. And I'm also a little bit nervous because I do know all the hours and that other people are doing for me right now that I'm somehow going to have to figure out how to either do on my own or also hire that first team that Stig just alluded to. So we're going to see what happens in the coming months. Sean, it's very interesting to hear what your new journey that you are set out to do. And I would definitely be your very first subscriber on the show. I'm personally a big fan of Silicon Valley and I'm really happy that it continues in a new format. What is the main takeaway that you have here from working on the Investors Podcast Network and seeing what works and what doesn't work? What is the number one thing where you're like, hmm, this is what I need to do in the new format? Well, first off, I'd like to say working with TIP in a way has actually ruined all podcasts for me, considering (laughs) now every time I listen to a podcast, I hear the ums, uh, the quality there that at one time never bothered me, but now it just drives me crazy, especially after hours and hours of editing and taking these out. So I want to thank Stig and all the amazing editors and that for now ruining that part of podcast for me. I think the biggest things for me, it's going to be the process. That's something I really got to know step by step from reaching out to the guests to setting up the questions, to the interview, to the editing, to the launch of the episodes, to the follow-up with the guests and the marketing. There's just so many steps in it for if you want to get that podcast, it's in the, the top, top 1%. So with that stick, thank you for giving me the opportunity at the end there to advertise what I'm about to do and what my journey moving forward. So with that, if anyone at home wants to find out more information about TIP and Stig, what's the best way to go about doing that? You can go to theinvestorspodcast.com and you can see all of our shows and you will still see Silicon Valley there. We're very, very proud and honored to feature Sean's show, Silicon Valley, on the network. And we will still continue to do that in the future. All the other listeners, remember my new podcast is called The Silicon Valley Podcast. And the website for it is thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. And I look forward to continuing a relationship with everyone And once again, Stig, thank you for this opportunity that I've had. And I really feel blessed and honored. And to all the listeners at home, please continue listening to the new show. Stig, thank you again for your time.
Thank you, also, Sean, and thank you so much for being a part of the Investors Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.